Well, good evening. You can turn over in your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. Let's open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word tonight before us, Lord. We thank you for the music that we've been able to sing tonight. Lord, these words are just such a blessing to us. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. Father, we thank you for your promises. And Lord, we thank you that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. And so, Lord, we pray tonight as we look at this chapter that speaks about seeking the Lord, how important it is to have Christ as our desire, Christ as our focus, as our subject in life. Seek the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would uh, instruct us through the power of your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for each one that's here. We ask you bless our time together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we read our text, just to remind you, uh, he opened up the introduction um, there in the, uh, after the opening introduction in the first verse, he, uh, in, in chapter one, he, he talked about how there was a revelation of the Lord's coming. And that started chapter one, verse two, all the way down to chapter three, verse 15. And, and what Amos did was he started with all the countries that were adjacent to Israel, that were hostile to Israel. And that's where he says, for three transgressions and for four, um, I'm going to punish you. In other words, this isn't, nothing can change this. This will take place. And that probably uh, shook up God's people a little bit. Um, in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 2, he just quickly kind of brushes over Judah because they weren't walking with the Lord either. But remember, Amos is from Tekoa, which that's where he came from, and that's in Judah. But now he's in Samaria. He's in the northern kingdom, speaking to the ten tribes. It's a split kingdom at this point, two in the south, ten in the north. And now when he's in, in Tekoa, where he came from, he's, he's basically telling Israel why this is going to happen the revelation of the Lord's coming, and then he gives the reasons for the Lord's coming judgment. And he does that in chapter 4, which we looked at last week, verse 1, all the way through most of the book until you get to chapter 9, verse 10. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, not that whole text, just chapter 5 tonight, because in chapter 5, he covers the second reason. Several times in, in chapter 4, he says, yet you have not returned to me. And so we said the first reason for the Lord's pending judgment upon Israel was their return to the Lord did not happen. A lot of times people will claim when they're in a tight situation, when they're in jail, when they're, well, Lord, you get me out of this mess and I'll serve you. I'll return to you. And then they never do. Well, this was the case with Israel. So that's the first reason why God's going to judge them is because the return to him never did happen. Um, that word return, aliyah, in, 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 the, in Hebrew, and there's a lot of people, I remember when we flew over to Israel with uh, David Hawking, there was actually people on our plane who were doing aliyah, they were going to the homeland, they were visiting Israel. There were Jews from North America and they were going there. And I remember thinking, wow, 
if they would spend as much effort as it's taking them to get to Israel, I mean, that's good. That's, that's a good thing for them to do that. That's part of their heritage. They've got to return to the land. But if they would just spend a fraction of the amount of effort that they spent on this trip to return, more importantly, to the Lord God of Israel, that would make a bigger difference in their life than this trip that they're taking. And so uh, that was the, the first reason. The return to the Lord did not happen. And then in verses 1 of chapter 5 through verse 27, He's beginning to look at the refusal. Their refusal to seek the Lord was quite obvious. The refusal to seek the Lord was quite uh, obvious. And he, he, a couple things here, seven in total, and we're going to look at this tonight. But I say, a lot of us, actually, it's very easy for us to have the outward trappings of a religious commitment in life, and yet be inwardly, far away from God. We've all done that. We've all come to church and, you know, we go to church, we do this religious thing, but we, our hearts are far away from God. And, and, you know, that's not something new. That's what Jesus said to the religious leaders in his day. He said to the religious leaders in his day, they were more involved with their religious trappings, right, of Judaism, all that stuff, than really anyone I know in history. And he said to them, with your lips, you honor me. In other words, you go through the motions, you honor me, but your heart, what's he say, is far from me. You're more interested in the traditions of men, he tells them, than you are the commandments of God. And that can be true in all of our lives at certain points in our Christian journey. And that really could be written all over chapter 5 here. And so follow along as we read the entire chapter, chapters 5, verses 1 to 27. Verse 1, he says, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, and this is key, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Then he says it again, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made uh, Pleiades and Orion and turned deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, we heard that before, and exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted uh, pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. 
You are afflict you 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 who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Verse thirteen. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas, they shall call to the farmers to mourning and, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, it's not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, says the Lord. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. You shall take up Sikoth, your, your king, and Kiang, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Wow. Pretty intense section of Scripture. Well, there's several things here I want to talk about, about the refusal to seek the Lord. They're, they're just blatant refusal to seek the Lord. Seven things. The first one here in verses 1 to 3 is really the declaration to Israel that this is a, a lamentation. He says, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. This is the only place, really, that we find this prophetic announcement. The declaration to Israel is a lamentation. He says that the, the word here, which he's taking up against them, is a lamentation. What does that mean? It means, it means judgment that's mixed with compassion. God's coming. Justice is, is upon the nation of Israel, and it's woven into these broken hearts. It's a lamentation. The word itself is found 24 times in the Bible. In the singular form, in the plural form, it's found another three times. There's a whole book <laughs> in the Bible, in the in in a uh, Jewish Bible that's that's connected with Jeremiah, but in ours is separate. The book of what? Lamentations, five chapters. It refers to the the crying and the mourning over someone's death. It's used this word 
is used of, of the death of Jacob in Genesis 50. It's used of the death of Saul and Jonathan as, as, as David takes up uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Isaiah refers to several lamentations and wailings throughout his prophetic writings. There was a lamentation and mourning over the death of Josiah in the last chapter of the Hebrew Bible. If you remember last week, I told you what that last chapter was. Anybody remember? 2 Chronicles verse 36. That's the last chapter in the Hebrew Bible, chronologically. It's not Malachi. <laughs> uh, in, the, in the New Testament, we have one example, and that's the crying over the death of Stephen, Stephen the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Uh, there's even a prophetic connection to this word lamentation about Rachel and her children in Jeremiah 31, which is actually quoted for us in, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, dealing with Herod's killing of all the babies, uh, the baby boys under the age of, of two. And it's called Rachel lamenting and mourning over her children. And so it's very interesting because a lot of times as a pastor, as a preacher, it's hard sometimes to preach judgment and the consequences and the wrath of God. It's hard to do that with a broken heart. Uh, because I don't know about you, but I kind of take a certain, you could say, perverted joy in the judgment of the wicked. They're getting what they deserve. Those who have been disobedient to God, they deserve God's wrath. They deserve his destruction. But you know what? We need to also remember, but by the grace of God, there go I. <laughs> right? Uh, we have to be very careful with this. And I love the way the Bible states this, and, and it's, it's put here because it reminds me that the Bible tells us very clearly the Lord does not take pleasure, what? In the death of the wicked. He does not do that ever, ever. God is not thrilled. You know, you read through the Old Testament and sometimes you hear these stories. And it's like, wow, how could God do this? Everybody was wiped out. God is not thrilled to destroy a complete civilization or a complete nation that have become so corrupt that unless he does, the other nations will be defiled as well. He's not saying, oh, goody, I get to destroy more people. That's not the kind of God we serve. But God's mercy is built into this word, lamentation, about judgment because it's an act of mercy that he is doing. And this is the first thing. That their declaration to Israel, the declaration here to Israel by Amos is a lamentation. God's not shouting for joy over this. Secondly, in verses 4 to 9, we see this decision that they must make to avoid the Lord's coming judgment. There's a decision that needs to be made. And he points us here in, in chapter 5, uh, verse 4. He says, seek me and live. And he says it several times in that text. The way to avoid this judgment in the New Testament, when we come to the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians, you remember Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and he, he, he was speaking in, in chapter 11 in the context of communion, right? But he says if we should, uh, that we should judge ourselves so that we would not be judged by the Lord. In other words, we examine our own hearts. And Peter tells us that judgment must begin where? With the house of the Lord, right? That's where it has to begin. 
Now, to the believer, we mentioned this last week a little bit, but I just want to dial down on this because I didn't want to give anybody a false impression of what I was teaching because I spoke about the believer and judgment in the believer's life. But judgment in the believer's life, we call it what? Chastening. We call it chastening. It's, it's a consequence. Um, in a very real fundamental sense, God is not punishing, nor does he ever punish the believer. Christ took our punishment. But he does chastise believers. He does chastise. He does discipline his children. And the Bible speaks of that often and very clearly. God brings sometimes difficult things into our lives. Why? Just so he can sit up there and go, oh, look at him now. He's just in misery. No, he wants to turn our eyes back to him. He wants to get our attention focused on him. He's not doing it so we can become angry, so we can become bitter with everybody around us. But he's doing it so that we can have our eyes on him, so we can be focused, so that we can be seeking the Lord. This is what actually uh, Solomon heard. You know, when, when the temple was dedicated in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, they got done, they had a, a, a huge celebration, and in the quietness of his own room, the scripture says God spoke directly to Solomon. After all the celebrations, and here's what the, the Lord said in verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face, there it is, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So seeking the Lord is not a foreign concept to the Bible. In Isaiah 55 verse 6, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. God is everywhere. He doesn't move, but he does shut his relationship to those because of their sin. And that's why we need Christ. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. And then in verse 2 of Isaiah 59, he says this, But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear you. This is what unbelievers need to understand. They can pray all day long. Unless it's a prayer of repentance, God doesn't hear that. King David said in Psalm 66, 18, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So the message is pretty clear. The message was to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he's near. And the decision that we have to make to avoid judgment, even in our own lives as believers, beloved, is, is, is God gives us a, a long rope, doesn't he? He's very gracious with it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, he's not... You know, oh, you messed up once, that's it. You're done. Um, hopefully you can testify to that. How many times God should have done us in, in our own lives, because we've done things that, you know, in our past, whatever it might be. Aren't you glad that he doesn't judge like some of your family or some of your friends? God doesn't do that. Aren't you glad that he's compassionate, that he's long-suffering? And I think it's important we understand the issue here. Here's what I want you to see in verses 4 to 9, the reason why they should seek the Lord. The reason, the first one here is the reason why they should seek 
the Lord. Why should they do this? He tells us in verse 4 and verse 6, what does he say? Seek me and what? Live. Now, is it possible that he's talking about uh, death, like physical death? Yeah, it's possible. But you know what? I think he's really talking about a life on a plane that's walking with the Lord. It's interesting to me how miserable our lives can be when we get away from the Lord. Do you agree? As believers, when we're not doing what the Lord wants us to do, we're going the other way, we're not listening to his voice, we're not hearing his word, we are miserable. When we ignore God, we don't make him the, the center and the focus of our lives and our attention, and it's very easy to get there. It's very easy to wander into that zone, at least it is for me. I'll speak for myself. And not only the reason why they should seek the Lord is crucial here, but look at, secondly, their refusal to compromise with pagan immorality and idolatry. This is kind of interesting, this portion of Scripture. He says here in verse 5, But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Well, what happened at Bethel? Well, that's where the golden calf was set up by Jeroboam. Remember? That's where it was. It was in Bethel. That's why Amos is up there. In Gilgal, this was the first encampment when Joshua came into the land. When he entered the, the promised land, this was where the first encampment was. Gilgal was the place where they put up the 12, remember the story of the 12 memorial stones to remember the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River? That's where it happened, in Gilgal. Gilgal was the place where all the children born in the wilderness who came in with Joshua because all their parents died, remember, because of unbelief? Remember that? All of them were circumcised at Gilgal. It's also the place where Saul was confirmed as king. The first Passover ever, ever celebrated in the land of Israel was at Gilgal. Think about this. But what does he say? He tells them, do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal. What's he referring to? Some believe maybe he's not referring to Bethel, the idol worship of the golden calf that Jeroboam set up, but rather he's speaking about Jacob's vision when God promised him the land when that was at Bethel. And maybe knowing Gilgal was the place that, that came in, what he's saying here is don't seek Bethel, don't seek Gilgal, don't pa do, and, and pass not to Be Beersheba. Well, what happened to Beersheba? That's where Abraham received all those wonderful promises, you remember, from God about the nation and about a land that would survive all the attempts to destroy it. And yet God says don't seek these things. I mean, if I was Jewish at this time, I would thank God for Bethel, where God spoke to Jacob. I would thank God for Gilgal, where the Jewish people had a brand new start as a nation, where they got circumcised, the young boys who came out of the wilderness. I'd remember, well, it was there where we celebrated our first Passover, where we set up the stones to remember the miraculous hand of God getting us across that river. 
I would remember Beersheba because that's the well of the oath, and it's speaking about God's oath to Abraham. These are very significant places in Judaism. It's also discussed, discussed in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. But what's the point here? Why would God, in his message of judgment through Amos, say, don't seek those things? He mentions the three places where God confirmed his protection for Israel, where he confirmed his power, where he confirmed his blessing and his provision for the people of Israel in the land. So why would he tell them don't go there? The answer is very simple. Because just like you and me, we often trust in that which we ourselves can see, right? And can understand, rather than trusting in the Lord himself. We do this often in our lives. Do I want to trust Bethel? What God did there, or do I want to trust in the Lord? Do I want to go just turn to, to Gilgal and trust what happened there, or do I want to trust in the Lord? See, a lot of us go back, and we remember when we came to know the Lord. That's kind of our Gilgal, right? That's where it all started. But listen, you can miss the Lord in all of this. You can miss the Lord, and this is what Israel did. They missed the Lord. You can pray and ask for God to bless you, and guess what? You miss the blesser. This happens all the time. It's easy. Ask yourself the question, is the Lord really your life? Do you really talk to him all the time? Is your relationship to him so vital that even when you're alone, and sometimes you can sense his presence there, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes <laughs> I don't have that kind of relationship with the Lord. That intimate relationship with the Lord all the time. It's easy to drift away from the vitality of the Lord himself. Being everything that we desire and we want. When Paul said that our Lord was sufficient for everything, everything. Do we really believe that as his people? Is the Messiah all and in all? Or can we get our eyes off the Lord? I like what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. Very simple instruction. He says, set your minds on things that are what? That are above. Not on the things on the earth. Why, Paul? For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What's he saying? He's saying, make sure you know what's really important. Don't get caught up with side issues. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. That's the reason you will live. That's the reason you will have an abundant life, eternal life. Jesus says, I come that you may have life and have what? Have a life more abundant. Super abundant, really, in the original language. But where is that life? That life is in him. He even said, I am the vine. And you're what? You're the branches. You're not the vine, you're the branches. 
And he who abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth food. For without me, you can do what? Nothing. Do we really believe that? I know there's some days in my life I don't believe that. <laughs> I think I can do things just fine, Lord. Thank you. See, this was the refusal to compromise with pagan immorality and idolatry. And it was incredible. And you say, where are you going with this? How they got involved. Because in all three places, in, 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 in Bethel, in Beersheba, in Gilgal, all three places, all three places were a place of blessing, were a place of promise by God, were a place of covenant and oath. But guess what happened? At all three places, they set up idolatry. <laughs> they allowed idols to be worshipped there in all three places. And what, what he's doing here through Amos, he's reminding them how easy it is to have all this in your past, all these blessings in your past, and yet not remember. Guess what? It's not you. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. And we end up substituting things for the Lord. I found this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's called the Prince of Preachers in England. They say that there's over 500 people who were under his teaching that actually went into full-time ministry under his guidance. 500. And in 41 years of preaching, without any amplification, without any microphone, they say that 25,000 people could hear him clearly when he spoke. Wow. I think I'd be hoarse in the first 30 seconds. He always told young preachers, don't ever wear a scarf around your neck or tie up your coat or even your shirt. Always unbutton it at the top and let the wind come right on in there. <laughs> then you won't get sick when it's cold. Now, unfortunately, Spurgeon wasn't a doctor, and many of his students got sick because they listened to his, his advice on that matter. But he has a, a writing, it lectures to his students, my students, and it's a wonderful little book if you ever get a chance. It was written over 100 years ago. But I, I just want to read this one little part because it's, it's very um, important, I think, that we understand that idols can be set up in our lives very easily, very easily. He says this, self in various forms struggle, struggles to subdue. The flesh sets up its altars wherever it finds space. Favored children are often the cause of much sin in the believer's lives. The Lord is grieved when he sees us doting upon them above measure. Instead of telling them about him, they will live to be as a great curse to us as Absalom was to David. Or they will be taken from us to leave our homes desolate and hurting. If you desire to grow thorns to stuff your sleepless pillow, then just dote over your loved ones. Now, if you're not into that, it gets, it gets more interesting. Listen to this. It is truly said that there are no gods for the objects of our foolish love who are very doubtful blessings. The solace which they yield us now is dangerous, and the help which they can give us 
in the hour of trouble is little indeed. Why then are we so bewitched with their vanities? We pitied the poor heathen who adore a god of stone, yet we worship the god of gold. Where is the vast superiority between a god of flesh and the one of wood? The principle of the sin, the folly, is the same in either case, only that in ours the crime is more aggravated because we have more light. And we, and we sin in the face of it as though it doesn't matter. The heathen vows to a, a false deity and the true God he has never known. We commit two evils inasmuch as we forsake the living God and turn to idols. We need to be purged from all this grievous iniquity. And then he writes a little poem and he says this, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That should be in our heart. Amen? That, that's where we need to go with this. It's not just worshiping at some stone idol. We have idols in our lives that sometimes we completely forget about. Well, verse 6, he moves on, not just the reason they should seek him and the refusal to compromise with pagan immorality and idolatry, but verse 6, he talks about the remembrance of Joseph. The remembrance of Joseph. This is to seek the Lord. It's a very interesting remark here. He says, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench uh, it for Bethel. Joseph's two sons were Ephraim and Manasseh, and Ephraim was the biggest tribe of the northern tribes in the, the central heartland of Samaria in Israel. And a lot of times, in many ways, Ephraim really became the name for all of the ten tribes. That happens often. In fact, the prophets Hosea, his message, he called the northern tribes Ephraim and said Ephraim is joined to idols. He just lumped them all together and he just called them Ephraim. It's very interesting that in Genesis 49, when Jacob was blessing his children, the wonderful blessing that he predicted for the house of Joseph. And so God is causing them to remember it, that even the house of Joseph will experience God's judgment, is what he's pointing out to them. They are protected by the blessing of, of the covenant that God gave to them. That's very interesting. Verse 7, he talks about the resistance to doing what is right. They were resistant to do what is right. They have to make a decision to avoid God's judgment, that is to seek the Lord. But in verse 7 it says, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. This is very uh, graphic language. It's like he's saying, you know what, you, you go on, but you don't, you don't care about what's right. There's an old-time evangelist. He used to say, do right until the stars fall. Some kids made fun of him. And they would say, do right until, until the stars come out. <laughs> in other words, party at night. You know, and in our world, that's a lot of what's going on. It's time to do what is right. There are many in, in the business world, 
in the secular world. There's, there's a big problem with people just doing the right thing. You can't trust anybody anymore. It seems like everybody is doing wrong. You can't trust their word. You can't trust their contracts. Nobody seems to do, want to do what is right. And that's so important. When verses 8 and 9, he talks about the response they needed because of who the Lord is. The response they needed because of who the Lord is. Do we forget who God is? It says the Lord is his name, and it lists four things about him. First of all, he's the creator, it tells us. He made the stars, Orion, and such. He's the creator. I mean, do you think your problems are really too big for him? He created everything that's around you. I think he can handle it. Why would you turn to someone or something else? Why would you turn to a mere man? To what they can help you? What can they say to you that would be more helpful than the creator? But he's also a comforter. It says there, and he turns deep darkness into morning. He teams, turns deep darkness into morning. He's talking about being comforted. It, 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 it caused some commentators to wonder if the sheep herder would actually have said this, but I think he would under divine control. Remember, he was just a, a farmer, Amos. And it says he turns the shadow of death into mourning. That's another way of, of putting that deep darkness. Remember what Psalm 23 says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil, for thou art with me, and thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He's a creator, he's a comforter, but he's also a controller. He is the controller, the controller. It says their darkness, he darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He controls all that. These aren't, these aren't natural uh, disasters that we have. These are from the hand of God. He sees when the rains come and the floods come and the hurricanes and the earthquakes and all that. They're from his hand. He reminds us that all the forces of nature are under what? God's control. So why are we seeking that which takes us away from him? He's the one that's in control. And then he's also the commander, verse 9, who makes destruction flash among uh, forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. He's the commander of the army of the Lord. He enables those who are defeated to come against the strong and win. Why? Because he's the commander. He's the conqueror. He's the one that's in charge. So they have a decision to make. They can do things their own way or they can seek the Lord. And if you seek the Lord, life's going to change for the better. If you do not seek the Lord, guess what? You're faced with judgment. This is Amos's message. It's very simple. Well, thirdly here, not only see the declaration and the decision, but thirdly is the description of their sins that will bring God's judgment. He kind of dials down and he says, this is why you're going to be judged, Israel. This is why you're going to be judged. First of all, they rebel against authority and truth. 
Look at verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks truth. There's a lot of, I, I wrote, uh, actually, no, you don't have them in there, but there's a lot of scriptures in Proverbs chapter 12 that none of us really like to be rebuked. When's the last time you've, you've been rebuked? And you say, oh, I can't believe it. I was so blessed today. Somebody rebuked me. No, you, you don't like to be rebuked. Um, in, in Proverbs 12, 10, uh, verse 22, um, chapter 13, and on, it, it, through the whole book of Proverbs almost, it tells us over and over and over, the scorner does not love the one who reproves him. We don't like to be reproved. That's just the way it is. The fact is that the sin they were guilty of, they didn't listen to the authority of God or the prophets. Anything God said to his servants, what did they do? They rebelled against it. They killed the prophets. They wouldn't listen to them. Number two, they refused to care about the poor and needy. We spoke about this earlier in the book. He brings it up earlier. So it must have been a pretty big deal for them at, at that point. It says in verse 11, therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact taxes of grain from them, and yet you have built your not self, houses of hewn stone, and yet, you know what? Because of my judgment, you're not going to dwell on them. You have all these vineyards. Guess what? You're not going to drink the wine. Why? Because they refuse to care about the poor and the needy. Now, we have to be wise with that. We don't just go out and give homeless people money and expect them to use it in the right way. You, you have to do it prayerfully you have to do it wisely but you shouldn't just turn a blind eye to it and he's saying this over and over again and so it's it's very very important and he he talks in the next thing is they react to that which is right with abuse and bribery they don't really care for people doing good things in their presence Verse 12, it says, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. Think if the Lord said that to you. Would you be a little intimidated? I think I would be. You know, if you heard those words from the Lord, I know how many your transgressions are and I know how great your sins are. You're not fooling me. You who afflict the righteous, and then he says this, who take a bribe, turn aside the needy in the gate. I mean, haven't you seen that in, in life? I mean, you know, you have people that are struggling, trying to do the right thing. They're suffering at the hands of people who are doing wicked and evil, and, and they're getting in trouble, and yet what do they do? They bribe their way out of everything, and they get away with it over and over and over again. Verse 12 says that, you know what? They react adversely to that. Why? Because they have no integrity. It doesn't come from their hearts. Then he says, they reflect a multitude of sins and produce an evil culture and a time. Verse 13 says, for it is an evil time. I mean, if that's not the day and age we live in today, I don't know what is with what's going on in the world. Think about it. They reflect a multitude of sins and produce an evil culture. Look at what's happening on some of the college campuses. It's horrific. What they're saying about the people of Israel. They also repress all those who want to see change. Verse 13, it says, Therefore, he who is prudent, in other words, the person who 
wants to do the right thing will keep silent in such a time. That's true. You don't want to get canceled. Just keep your mouth shut. Stay out of it. Stay above the fray. Don't preach on that, man. That's divisive. That upset people. See, they intimidate those who are godly. They intimidate those who are righteous and wise. And they intimidate them to the point where they don't say anything. And then we wonder why our culture is in the situation it's in. And I think it's time the church stand up and start to say something. Start to say, hey, wait a minute, this is wrong. Killing an unborn baby is wrong. Marrying someone of the same sex is wrong. No, I'm sorry, you're not a female, you're a male. And I'm not going to call you Shirley, I'm going to call you Bob. If that offends you, too bad. I'm not really cared, care about your personal pronoun preferences. I mean, we have gone so far the other direction that even those within the church are coddling this. But that's why it's flourishing. That's why you have the leaders of some of the major education institutions before Congress, when they're asked, well, don't you think it's wrong that they want to annihilate all the Jews? Well, I guess maybe we have to wait and see if, if that leads to any action first. What in the world? And this is higher education. People spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to these places to educate their children. They don't stand up because it's an evil time. We need to start standing up. Fourthly, the deeds that may bring the graciousness of the Lord. What do we need to do to see change? That's a great question to ask. Two things here. Verse 14, he says, We must desire good over evil in order to know his special presence. You have to desire good over evil. Look at what he says in verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. This is not difficult. This is not hard theology to understand. It's, it's not like God is speaking in some unknown code. He just says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. See, God's presence will become a very powerful, a very real power in our lives when we seek good and not evil. When our desire for good overcomes evil. It will bring a special presence with the Lord. And number two, there's two things here. Verse 15, we also must despise evil and love good. We must desire good over evil, but secondly, we have to despise evil and love good. It says in verse 15, hate evil and love good. So we're to seek good, not evil, and we're to hate evil and not good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. That phrase, the Lord, the God of hosts, is repeated here three times in verses 14, 15, and 16. What's he saying? He's the God of armies, but he's appealing to them. He's, he's, he's extending his hand to them. He's saying, why would you want to experience the judgment of, of my armies as his angels to deliver the judgment upon the nations. Why experience this judgment in your own personal life? Why would you want to do that? Why as a believer would we want to put ourselves under the chastisement of God? So he says, seek good, not evil. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Brings us down to verses 16 to 20. 
And the fifth thing here is the day of the Lord is not something to be desired. The day of the Lord is not something to be desired. You have an interesting application here because the day of the Lord is, is God's judgment upon these ten northern tribes in this context. Soon they'll be taken into captivity to Assyria. God will judge them. But also the day of the Lord in Scripture is a special term that refers to the future tribulation period that hasn't happened yet. So what about this day of the Lord? Well, first of all, it says the crying that will take place in verses 16 to 17. Tremendous crying is going to take place in that day of the Lord. Why? It says, he will pass, I will pass through, saith the Lord. And there's going to be terrible crying, wailing in the streets. It says, many believe that our, our Lord was quoting these, these verses when he said, men's heart shall fail them for fear. They'll be crying and weeping, panic everywhere. That, that day is coming. I mean, I think of that morning when Hamas invaded Israel and slaughtered people and did those horrible acts. I mean, think of the wailing and the crying that went on in those communities as they saw their loved ones either murdered. In that case, it probably would have been easier to see them murdered than to take them hostage and not know what's happening to them. This is going to happen, and it's going to make that day look like a picnic. Crying will take place. In verses 18 to 20, he says the chief characteristic will be that of darkness, not light. In other words, this isn't going to be a party. It's not going to be a party. This is kind of a play on words. Although it can refer to actual darkness, the sun will be turned into darkness at the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1.15 says that as well. But I think it's more than just that. This is a metaphor that in the, in the Jewish kind of uh, expression for saying that if you thought the lights were going to come on you because everything's going your way, remember, this was a very prosperous time in these 10 northern tribes. They weren't going poor. They were, they were very wealthy. They were living in opulence. And he says, if you think everything's going your way, and the lights are just going to come on because, you know what, you're just doing what you want to do. He's saying, no, you may be prospering at the present time, and things look like they're going pretty good, even though you're far from the God of Israel, and you're far from the Lord, you're, you're, you're far from anything to do with Him. But in His graciousness, in His love for you, He allows you to continue. He allows you to continue to prosper, and think that somehow you're going to escape this. And he's saying, you're mistaken. No one's going to escape this. What's coming is darkness, not light. You will be blinded. You will be blinded to see what God wants you to see during this time. Blinded to what is really right. You'll be blinded to all that is good and wonderful and what God wants you to do to bless you because it will be utter darkness when God comes to judge. That's, that's powerful stuff. Well, not only is the day of the Lord not something to be desired, but sixthly, are we going here? Sixthly, the despising of the religious practices reveals the importance of our worship. This is in verses 21 to 24. 
the despising of the religious practices reveals the importance of our worship. You know, it's interesting to me that just from the period of the time that I've been in ministry, which hasn't been that long, since the early 80s, I have seen a fundamental shift in what I would call worship in the church. Uh, my first position in any church was a bus ministry director, a youth director, and a choir director, music director. That's what my title was. But there's been such a fundamental shift and a misunderstanding of what worship is. It's become this external thing that we want to do before we open up our Bible. And this, this, this really reveals the importance of worship. Now you don't call the, the person who leads the choir the worship director. You call him the what? The worship, the pastor. The worship pastor. That was introduced within the last 20, 30 years. I see it in, in church bulletins that people bring me sometimes. They'll, they'll have the bulletin schedule and they'll have the worship and then the word. Like the worship is the music, and then the word. Um, I've been guilty of this as well. Sitting at the piano, okay, well, let's, let's worship. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that really mean? It reminds me of a sign I saw one time, a small church that says, come to our revival in three weeks. I thought, how do they know there's going to be a revival in three weeks? Isn't revival something God does? Supernaturally? Sporadically? I mean, how are they planning for a revival? And see, sometimes in our churches, we, we want to make the worship so touchy-feely and focused on all the music so much, we think that's what worship is. That's not what worship is, my friends. See, this is why in this church, my understanding is as the pastor of this church, I am the worship leader of our service. I have people help. There's people helping. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's a very important point to be made. As the person who is overseeing and responsible, you are the leader of that worship service. And you know what? It's, it, it's, it's like what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. The Father seeks such to worship him. It says, God is spirit. They who worship him, worship him in what? Guess what? That's not the Holy Spirit. There's no definite article there. He's not referring to the Holy Spirit when he says, worship him in spirit and truth. He's, he's drawing a contrast. He's saying, don't don't worship in the flesh. Worship in your spirit. It's a contrast to the flesh. In other words, the point is made that it's very easy, is it not, for us to worship in the flesh? As a musician, I know it is for me. Sometimes I can, I can, I can get into a song and, and, and some, finally somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, you know the song, the words to the song are not even biblical? 
really? Huh. Well, I like the tune as a musician, right? It, it's easy to get into that. I mean, I've looked at a whole different kinds of music. We all des desire different kinds of music. It's very easy to worship in the flesh. And what I mean by that, it's all outward. It's all outward. And you have to stop and you have to say, wait a minute. Um, I mean, everybody knows the only music that's, that's worthy of any kind of, of, of worship is country western. It's three chords, you know, a couple words. I'm joking, okay? I'm just saying it doesn't matter the style. Churches are so caught up in style of worship, they actually have different service for, for different kinds of music. You know, they have all the young people, and they got the rock thing going on with all the smoke. And then the pastor puts on a tie, and he goes out, and he leads a choir. I mean, it's so weird. And you end up dividing the body of Christ. I praise God we have never done that here. Nor will we. I pray, as long as I'm here, we won't. We do a blended worship. It doesn't matter what kind of the song is. It's irrelevant. Because we're not focused on the outside. What are we focused on? We're focused on our hearts. God never said worship had anything to do with what went on on the outward part. You know, we think if we have everybody clapping and everybody singing along, wow, well, it wasn't worship goodness. <laughs> well, says who? I mean, I don't know if God's saying that. I had one lady in a former church tell me, you know, I don't, I don't like those new songs you're playing, that, that new praise music. Whoa, that sounds weird. Are you a Christian? So you don't like music that praises the Lord? Well, I like the older things, the older hymns, you know. And I said, oh, those, those were written like 30 years ago. That ain't old. <laughs> you know, I mean, you talk about a couple hundred years, maybe you get to the good stuff. And I know what she was saying. She was talking, you know, I can't worship with these songs. You know, it's, it's, it's seven words and they sing it 11 times and it's just over and over again. It's just monotonous. I get that. But you know what? Really, we're no different than where Israel was back then. We're all talking about this. We're talking, we want to do worship. We're constantly trying to find out what, what that worship is. What is it? Just because you put worship in the bulletin doesn't mean it actually happens. God called worship the teaching of his word. That's what worship is. Whether it's through song or whether it's through preaching. So we need to refocus that. I think it's important that we realize that this is, is so important to the Lord that he wants us to see this. Despising their religious practices. The smells of their celebration were not sweet-smelling in the nostrils of the Lord. This is what he says here in verse 21. You say, what do you mean the smells? Well, that whole, that whole, that verse there, that's really what that means in verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight. If you look it up in the original language, it means smell. I don't, I don't, I don't like to smell your offerings anymore. That's what that means. Remember in Leviticus, when the sacrifice 
of worship were given, it says that it was a sweet smelling savor in the nostrils of our God. Well, he says, I hate, I despise your feast in verse 21. I take no delight. In other words, I will not smell. I hate the smell of your solemn assemblies. It's not sweet smelling to him. Verse 22, he says, the sacrifices they offered were not accepted by the Lord. Not was it just smelly. It wasn't even, it wasn't accepted. They weren't accepted. Verse 22 says, you offer me burnt offerings, meal offerings, I won't accept them. I'm not going to regard the peace offering of your fat beast. You kind of hear Amos saying this because he was a, a rancher. He was a farmer. He, he knew what these sacrifices were made of. This isn't Amos saying this. This is the Lord saying this through Amos. The Lord is despising their sacrifices. Why did he say that? Because all the fat was trimmed off the animal and burnt on the altar? The Bible says that all the, the fat is the Lord's. I love that passage. All the fat is the Lord's. But what it means is basically that the fat is not a part of the sacrifice. Just get rid of it. And now he's saying to them, I don't accept what you are offering. I don't want them. Micah chapter 1 says the same thing. I don't want it. Get rid of it. It's done with a wrong motive. It's done with an impure heart. And then he speaks of the songs of their worship were nothing more than noise in the ears of the Lord. Wow. You know, it's just not having music louder or newer or whatever. It's, it's what's going on in the heart. I remember we had a worship time here with another church one time, and I was praying with one of the brothers before the thing, and his prayer was this, you know, Lord, we just pray that the people will feel the worship, feel the worship. And he said, I'm like, what is that? What do you mean by that? We put so much emphasis on the external. We're not going to make people feel anything. We can if you want to manipulate people. Why do you think they have all the music playing when they do their little altar calls and all that stuff? It's manipulative. It's manipulative. No, we choose to leave the results to the Lord. We don't need some emotional worship music playing to get a decision from people. And I'll tell you what, this is so far-reaching, and it's, it's across all of, all of the churches today, because worship has become something that, that people idolize, and I'm speaking of music when I speak of worship in this case. And all you have to do is look at the money that is made. Billions and billions and billions of dollars are made because of worship. I don't think God takes pleasure in that. I really don't. And we have to refocus. We have to stop and we have to say, wait a minute, what are we doing here? Is this really important? I'm not saying we shouldn't use technology. I'm not saying we shouldn't use instruments. I'm not saying that, you know what, all those things are important too, I think. But we have to keep them in their place. 
I remember when I first came to church here, it was Wally in front of the church singing out of a hymn, the acapella. That may not be fun for the musicians. <laughs> but you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. We have to take our eyes off ourselves, beloved. Especially when we're worshiping the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It doesn't matter. The last thing here, the substance of true worship. The substance of true worship involves doing what is right all the time. He says in verse 22, but let justice roll down like waters. In other words, it just keeps coming. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Ever-flowing stream. And it's just such a, a neat picture. It's just like a stream of flowing water that you're committed to do what is right no matter what. And then lastly here, we'll close with this, a determination to send them into captivity had already been made by the Lord. He reminded them of their religious practices in the wilderness. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings in verse 25 for 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? He basically says, you know what? I endured all that stuff that you did. <laughs> um, you are all unbelieving. You murmured. You complained about everything. Did you really get religious out there? The Lord's saying, I, I kind of put up with that. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, you're doing the same thing now. You're not seeking me. You're trying to do an end around. He rebuked them in verse 26 for their idolatry. He not only reminded them of the religious practice, he says, you shall take up Sikoth, your king, and key on your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. He brought up all this, this idol worship that was going on. He says, I, I cannot cancel the judgment upon you that's going to come from Babylon. And that was on, on Judah here. And the flaming judgment against Israel, they're going to be into captivity in Assyria. It's going to happen. Why? Because they followed paganistic practices. This is an abomination to God. And then the last thing here, he revealed the place where they would be taken. He says, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. See, they always thought about their battles re re regionally, you could say, and how they went to Damascus several times, and then God would deliver them. This is just like a pattern over and over and over again. But this time, it was harsh. You're not going to captivity Far, you're going to go to captivity far beyond Damascus. You're going to go to Assyria. This is a land they'd never been to, they didn't know anything about, and the judgment of God was going to fall upon them. When you say, well, what is the message of all this for us? For us, The message is the righteous will suffer punishment or chastisement from God because He loves us. Because He wants us to see that it's He that we are missing. He really wants us to ask these questions. Is it the Lord that you really want? Is he really the focus of your life? Is he really what you desire? Do you want to know his presence and your, his power in your life? Do you really, really love him? These are questions he wants us to answer. And he gives us a simple challenge. If the answer is yes, then what do we do? We have to seek the Lord. We have to seek 
the Lord. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. And Lord, we pray that with the holidays coming quickly upon us, I pray that the blessing of your Son, the birth of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would not pass us by. Lord, that we will seek you. The Bible says wise men, wise men seek you. And more than just tackle you, you know, just, just tacking you up for somebody to go to for what we need now and then, we pray that everything that we go through every day may be related to you. May we cry out to you at our, from our hearts for fellowship with you, that we would want to know you more and more, even in the closing days of 2023. We pray that you would help us to not miss you, the blesser, in the midst of all of our blessings. Make it our daily habit to seek you out in prayer and study. Then you would heal us, Lord. Then you would bless us as individuals, that you would bless us as families, that you would bless us as a church, that you would bless us as a nation if we stand up do the right thing, and seek you with all of our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.